look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More Than Money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle Matters. It's More Than Money. I'm Faisal Carmelli, my co-host here, filling in for Dave Popowich. Andrew Masson. Andrew Masson's here. Andrew, I think um, Dave is learning how to use Reddit. <laughs> Dave is lo- maybe I he said, can teach me too, <laughs> and, and that's who we also have with us today. We have a great show lined up. We've got a couple of great guests. One's waiting for us to chat with them, taking time out of his busy schedule. Um, Andrew Masson, first of all, thank you for filling in for Popovich. Thank Thanks you so much. As always, all right. So we've got a great show today. We've got Andrew McCreeth. He is the CIO and co-owner of Forge First Investments. Andrew, thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be with you guys. All right. So let's let's break this down. We've seen a lot of drama this week, a lot of volatility, especially in, in certain names. And um, it's in some cases, we're hearing about the dark night uh, chasing after these hedge fund managers and so forth and all the stuff that's going. So let's, let's get the basics out for our listeners to tell them what the heck is happening and then we can kind of go into the details of of what people should do as individual investors or what money managers like yourself and myself are doing uh when it comes to this so let's start off on the on the on the on the overall view what's going on with this whole concept of that hedge fund managers are shorting stock let's explain to people what shorting is well, shorting is when you, I might call you up, Faisal, and say, hey, look, uh, I think the outlook for Suncor is terrible. And as a result, I think the stock price is going to go down. And But I can't sell something that I don't own. And so I say, hey, Faisal, I'm going to pay you 3% interest on an annual basis if you lend me the shares of Suncor that you own and you say, okay, good, I'll do that. So I borrow the shares from you. I sell the stock at $20 because I think it's going to go down to $10. Um, And then if it, if it turns out that I'm wrong and it starts going up to 22, 25, 30, I'm going to get a phone call and say, Hey, wait a minute you have to buy that stock in because you don't have enough money in your account to cover the fact, cover what's called margin uh, that, that is happening as a result of the stock going up. You were wrong. Um, but you short a stock largely because you think it's going to go down. Um, and you, to be able to short it, you have to borrow it. Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, um, GameStop is a great example because it's kind of like the blockbuster of the year 2021 because it's retail stores that sell games. And so a lot of people think that they don't have a long-term business because they had not migrated to online gaming. And so consequently, a lot of folks went out and shorted the stock. But what I think is a key reason that's driving this mania is that, believe it or not, a stock can be shorted multiple times. So in other words, um, an insurance company may have a position in GameStop, so it lends out the stock to a hedge fund that wants to short it, who then sells that stock to an individual investor. 
the individual investor's broker then takes that stock and lends it out to another individual investor who also shorts the stock by selling it to an index fund. <laughs> so we now have a single stock that has been shorted twice. And so the short interest ratio is, in that example there, two over one or 200%. So um, you get situations like GameStop where the short interest, number of shares shorted, is materially greater than the number of shares that are available for trading. Mm -hmm. So that's point number one, and that's what shorting is. So point number two, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Andrew, continue, please. So point number two is there's this thing called the options market, where you can you know, buy or sell calls or buy or sell puts. And an option is like what you think it is. It's a, you buy a call option. Let's say, let's go back to Suncor. Let's say Suncor is 20 bucks. You're bullish on oil. So you think that over the next six months, oil is going to double in price. Um, you don't have enough money to buy a share of Suncor, but you want to buy an option. So you buy an option on Suncor that gives you the right, you pay a price for that option. It gives you the right to buy a share of Suncor at $20 before December of 2021. Not an obligation, a right. Um, same thing with puts, except a put is a right to sell it as opposed to buy it. So um, what you've seen happening is a bunch of investors driven by Reddit and a couple of websites pile into options on heavily shorted stocks. And that has created a dynamic, which we won't get into, because it would cause us to talk a lot about like Greek letters like gamma and theta. <laughs> uh, we're not going to go there. Um, but remember, this stock, there's more shares shorted multiple times relative to the shares outstanding. And so people pile into uh, buying call options as a group, as a herd, and whoever sells you that option goes out and hedges themselves by buying the stock. And it has the effect of pushing the stock up. And so the fact that it is heavily shorted relative to its float, and you have a herd of people buying thousands and thousands of call options is creating this effect. This, this, sounds, this sounds crazy, hey? Mm -hmm. Andrew, this sounds crazy because there, you can, it sounds like it's getting into a problem where it gets way over, over leveraged or it gets too much of a short position. Problem's going to happen here. Now we've got this, we were talking, right? You and yeah. I were talking about, about Robinhood and how online trading platforms like Robinhood were coming into play. And yeah. you, were, you were having some, we were having some conversation about that. Well, I think one of the big things I'm really sort of interested here, Faisal, is what's the risk? And what I mean by risk is what's the risk to the individual investor, Andrew? And let's step in for a second because there's other people that are affected in this too. And in this particular case, we're talking hedge funds. What's the risk to them and, and why is this a problem? Well, there's a couple of comments that I'd make. I mean, you know, at Forge First, we stick to our very simple rule book. And one of those many, one of the many rules is that we do not short stocks that are quote unquote heavily crowded. I mean, we would never go near a stock like GameStop. It's, there's too many shorts in it. And we're seeing the problems with that today. That's point number one. Point number two, if you're short the stock, you're getting crushed. 
um, because it's gone up so much. And not to get into too much hedge fund parlance, but as your short position goes against you, you have margin calls. You have to put up more capital. And to create that capital, you typically have to sell something. So you sell a long position. Mm-hmm. And so in our funds, we have, you know, we, we're, we're buy and hold long-term investors of companies uh, that generate free cash flow. And um, we, have see, we have had a couple of U.S. industrial stocks in our portfolio that we noticed earlier this week, they're down six or seven percent for no reason. Um, per, you know, reasonably valued companies, clean balance sheets, good prospects, all that stuff. But it's probably a second derivative effect Correct. of this GameStop stuff, where the hedge fund that's getting crushed and you know goes out of business or has to be bailed out by you know large hedge fund titans has to sell their long positions, and so the second impact to answer your question is guys like us where we've owned a couple of good companies that come under sell- selling pressure for no reason because people are having to sell what they own to meet their margin bill. Okay, we got to go pay some bills and come right back. We're going to talk about companies like Robinhood and other online brokers for the average individual. Is it you versus the big guys who can take you out really quickly? Andrew's going to talk about that after the break, but don't forget, we have our seminar coming up February 23rd, 7 p.m., live online. You need to register to talk about all this and how it impacts your retirement. Go to morethanmoneyradio.com to register. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk to Andrew McCreeth about it's Robin Hood and companies like that against the big guys. Who's going to win? Join us after the break on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. And we are joined with Andrew McCreeth. Uh, hedge fund manager, CIO, Forge First uh, Investments. We've been working with him for years, Mr. Masson. That is right. And um, when we start hearing stuff about like GameStop, Robinhood, all these issues, we want to bring people who understand this a lot better than, than you and I do and bring some experts on the show. But there's a bigger problem. There's a bigger problem when it comes to what's been going on, and I think we need to uh, uncover that. Yeah, I, w- I would say, you know, there is uh, some some risk um, that exists, and, and Andrew, perhaps maybe you can give us a little bit more clarity on what you were thinking. Yeah, and without going into great detail, because there's there's a lot of avenues that one can take it, the simple fact of the matter is uh, the kind of activity that this recent mania has created uh, generates concerns that uh, clearing parties uh, which are responsible for clearing the trades between brokers, you know, a, a trade between CIBC and TD, like there's an end client, but that end client has an advisor, like your great team at CIBC, uh, and you have to clear the trade that you do with the other broker. And there's, there's, a, there's a concern that trades are not going to be able to be settled, that buyers and short sellers won't be able to post daily margins, and that con- concerns that brokerage firms won't be able to post minimum capital requirements. So um, that's where the potential is for a systemic issue, and that's why brokers stop trading these stocks. That's why brokers materially increase the margin on trading these stocks. And I find it impossible to consider that, given what we've learned over the last 25 years, uh, something's not going to be done in short order to ensure that this be, does not become a systemic event. Um, but 
I would urge all investors to stay away from this kind of trading. This is not trading. Uh, I happen to know that somebody from Wealth Simple was on BNN Bloomberg earlier today, and he was talking about the good part of this is bringing more people into the investing world. That is utter rubbish. Uh, this is gambling. You might as well go down to Las Vegas and it's gamble. Casino. This is yeah. ridiculous stuff. Investors should stay away from this. The other comment I want to make quickly, because I want to leave, I want to hammer that last point home. I find it impossible to think that regulators will ensure, will will not take any action to ensure that this does not become a problem. And this the is... ultimate hammer is the SEC, which of course is the Securities and Exchange Commission in the United States. And in the Securities Exchange Act of 1934 that created the SEC, there actually is a rule that prevents this kind of herd behavior. The question is whether they have the gumption to actually act on it. And that's what we're going to find out over the coming weeks and months on what exactly they're going to do. It's already gone to Senate committee. They're already all talking about this politically. Um, it's, it, the, it's the argument over the little guy. And that's what keeps coming back. And, up. and I don't know if that's the actual uh, problem. No, I, I agree. think that's a spinoff it, of a problem. It is. And I think this is where we, we have to be cautious about what we do. Anybody listening to this show needs to understand that you need to get the advice. You need to get proper due diligence done before you invest. Um, and, and like uh, Mr. McCreeth was saying, we've got two Andrews on the show, so I've got to give you guys your last <laughs> names only here. Uh, like Mr. McCreeth was saying. with M, Hazel. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's, you, you, it's, this is casino playing, and so get the due diligence. I want to spend a few minutes with you, Andrew, on the portfolio at Forge First. You've been doing a great job last year, fantastic results considering all the volatility. You've been able to manage through this. A lot of people, and we've worked closely together for years now. We, you know, normally this type of a conversation or this type of issue would have been a steak dinner here in Calgary with you and me, and we would have talked about this. Unfortunately, because of the pandemic, we can't. So, give me a walkthrough of what's happening in the portfolio, and what's what are you what are you what signals are you getting of which way this this market's going? Well, first and foremost, uh, this I believe that this is just noise, um, and it will abate because I can't comprehend that regulators won't ensure that it abates. And consequently, um, you know, we added some, we bought call options on the VIX index, which okay. is inappropriately referred to as the fear index, but it's an index that uh, tracks volatility. And so we bought call options uh, to hedge part of our portfolio in, clay, in case volatility picks up. Other than that, um, it's, regular day-to-day business for us because our formula is pretty simple. We uh, were bottom-up stock pickers uh, focused on fundamental analysis uh, and free cash flow generation. And we go long and short publicly traded companies in North America uh, focused on mid and large cap stocks. So um, we believe that past this noise, the market is going to be continue to be driven by three variables. First off, the Federal Reserve. Chairman Powell on Wednesday earlier this week made it quite clear that they are not taking their foot off the pedal. So the Fed continues to be all in. That's supportive for stocks. Mm -hmm. Point number two, um, as the economy opens up again, I believe that more people are going to want to do more business with each other. And that includes traders of stocks. And consequently, as traders are more willing to trade with each other, there's greater liquidity in the marketplace. And as there's greater liquidity in the marketplace, volatility tends to go down. 
and that will bring more money into the stock market. Interesting. Point number three, interest rates. Um, we don't have time to talk about interest rates. I'd love to talk interest rates with you sometime. Um, and, you know, viewer, you know, viewers and listeners can look at my website, forgefirst.com, and read my commentaries where I do talk about interest rates. Mm-hmm. My bottom line is interest rates are going to remain low and supportive of stocks and supportive of all stocks. I'm sure your listeners, Faisal and Andrew, have read stories over the last six months that interest rates are going to go up enough that what the market calls long-duration stocks, like the big tech stocks like Microsoft and Google and Visa and Amazon, are going to be hurt by rising interest rates. Rubbish. They're not. I think all stocks are going to move higher uh, as a result of interest rates not going up. And so consequently, while we think cyclical stocks will outperform growth stocks over the next two to three months, I think that for the next few months, once we get past this noise, stocks will continue to grind higher. But ultimately, the market will reach a level. Let's call it 4,000 for the S&P 500, where the forward prospects uh, will not be equal for all. And at that point in time, I believe that some growth stocks will keep going higher. I'll call it the GARP stocks, growth at reasonable price. But that the GAP stocks, growth at any price, will start to fade. And then on the value of the cyclical side, I think some will keep going. I mean, we've owned CP Rail for several years, and they had a great quarter, incredibly well-managed company. we think that business will keep getting better because the cycle, as the cycle gets better. But bank stocks, generally speaking, I don't think interest rates are going to go up. I don't think the yield curve is going to go up. I don't think the demand for loans is going to go up a heck of a lot other than mortgages. And so I think there's going to be greater what's called dispersion. In other words, differences in the forward return prospects of different stocks. Um, Andrew, we have to leave it there, sir. You and I can talk about this for hours, if not days. I would love to bring you back on and let's talk about where this market's heading. Let some of this noise over Robinhood and GameStop kind of clear through and bring you back so we can actually get into the crux of where the opportunities lie to make money uh, over the long term. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for the opportunity, both Faisal and Andrew. And... uh, Great way to spend a Saturday morning chatting to you guys. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. We've been joined by Andrew McCreeth, CIO, co-owner of Forge First Investments. Um, you know, we're going to talk about the different pillars in an investment strategy you need. And we've been working with Andrew on one of our pillars the whole time. And so we're going to talk about that on Tuesday, February 23rd, 7 p.m., live online. Now you need to register for this. So go to morethanmoneyradio.com. That's morethanmoneyradio.com to register. Our government's poised to raise taxes. Stick around after the break and we'll answer that question. You're on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back here with Dave and Faisal on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Get tons of questions about taxes, my friend. Clearly, with all the government spending that's going on, um, are they going to go up? Interesting article put out by Benjamin Tall, who's our deputy chief economist at CIBC, talking about that the income gap, between high-income earners in Canada and low-income earners in Canada has widened. Job creation uh, has happened in that higher-income earning um, segment of our Through this pandemic. Through the pandemic. Yeah. And there's been a a worse-than-expected fall in the lower-income jobs. That income gap is becoming a problem. Could that lead to an increase in taxes in that category, that higher-income category? Let's find out. Uh, Benny, welcome to the show. 
Thank you. A pleasure. Okay. Um, we got to talk a little bit about that, the article. So I, I've tried to set up the notion that the pandemic has had a very disproportionate effect on lower-income uh, earning Canadians than it has on higher-income earning Canadians. Maybe just, just give us a sense of, of how dramatic a difference that has been, and then we can transition to talking about what might come of this um, because of it. Yes, uh, that's a very good point because uh, this has been the most asymmetrical uh, recession ever in terms of uh, the impact on low-income versus high-income Canadians. Uh, all the jobs lost uh, during this recession uh, were lost among low-income Canadians. And uh, what we found, which was very interesting and surprising, is that the number of jobs among high-income Canadians has risen by 300,000 positions. So we have seen a situation in which the income gap, the earning gap, has been widened dramatically. So we all know that income went up during this recession. This is the first recession ever that income went up. And many people blame the government, said, you know what, the government is spending too much money. To an extent, maybe. But a number, the number one factor behind this increase in income was actually that wages of high-income Canadians went up dramatically because their labor force went up and therefore employment went up. This is something that we have never seen before. Usually any other recession, including the 2008 recession, saw all jobs going down, high paying and low paying. This time all of them are low paying and all the gain high paying, something that we have never seen before. Very, very interesting. So, so Benny, does that kind of conclude that we're going to see increased taxes for higher income individuals, and you can define what higher income means for us, and that's going to give that redistribution back to the lower income individuals? Yes, we don't know, but clearly it will be tempting for the government to do so. I don't think they will do anything when it comes to taxation anytime soon, but eventually something will happen. Let's put it in perspective. When I say high income, in this study, we're talking about people who are making, uh, let's say, above $70,000, $80,000 a year. So when the government is going to go after people, it will be actually more uh, higher-paying uh, higher individuals. So let's put it in perspective in terms of the motivation and what kind of uh, taxes. First, uh, we know that before the crisis, government spending as a, as a share of the economy was about 15%. Now it's about 35%. Clearly unsustainable, and it will, it will go down. But when it goes down, it will go down to maybe uh, 17 18 19% of, uh, the, uh, of GDP. This means that we are seeing a permanent increase in government spending. A permanent increase in government spending because we know, without even noticing, that we are putting together the infrastructure, the plumbing for tomorrow's social assistance program. We're talking about universal uh, daycare. We're talking about uh, maybe some elements of permanent uh, changes to the EI system maybe basic income or an element of it, all this will cost money. So there will be a permanent increase in um, the share of government spending in the economy. And at one point, you have to pay for it. And that's where I see some increase in taxation. And then maybe uh, they will go after capital gain. We know that already in the fiscal 
update. They introduced a tax on a big tech on options. Mm-hmm. Maybe the next step will be to increase the inclusion rate for capital gain taxes. Maybe they will take some, uh, uh, you know, carbon tax money and put it into some sort of general um, purposes. Or if they are totally desperate, they will go after HST. One percent increase in HST is about seven, eight billion dollars of uh, government revenue. Very difficult to avoid the temptation. Again, it's not going to happen anytime soon. Now we are in a recovery mode. It will take a while. But 2023, maybe, we might see some elements of higher taxes. So the purpose of the higher taxes, is that just to pay down the excess Mm -hmm. debt? Or is that to actually get the redistribution of income to to help the lower income individuals? The numbers that you said was less than $70,000. How does this help the, the lower income individual if you raise taxes? Yes, uh, I don't think it will be about uh, income distribution. It will be more about financing government spending that is designed to help low-income individuals and the gig economy. You will have a more generous uh, social safety uh, net, if you wish, and somebody will have to pay for it. I doubt they will go after income tax because the marginal tax, uh, the marginal uh, rate of uh, tax now is way too high, and I don't think they will go higher than that. So they will go after uh, capital gain. They will go after maybe consumption in terms of HST or even um, carbon tax, something along this line. Yeah. All right. So in the article, uh, I know you're speculating, but you said, um, you know, it seems a reasonable outcome that this will happen. So give us a probability. How, how confident are you that we're marching down this path? Well, I really don't know. It's a tough one. It uh, depends who's uh, running the government, depends yeah. uh, the political situation. There are so many unknowns. What I'm telling you is that we are seeing, going to see a permanent increase in spending, and at one point there will be a push to make sure that this deficit is not rising yeah. too quickly. So there will be some elements of uh, higher taxation, but I don't think it will be on income. I think it will be more on capital gain, excluding real estate, I think. It will be more financial capital gain. We have to remember that uh, the government or the Liberal Party and the NDP definitely spoke about it before, even before the elections it was an issue. So that's something that might happen. Uh, however, it will not raise the revenue that they need, and that's why I fear that there is a risk, a risk that they will go after the HST, but only if you are totally desperate. Got it. Uh, Benny, I want to thank you for your input um, today on this. It's a question that we get lots, and I think you've shed some light on it. Thanks for joining us. A pleasure, and good luck. Thank you. We're joined by Benjamin Tall, Deputy Chief Economist at CIBC. Well, the good news is unlikely, in Benny's opinion, that it happens this year or even maybe next year. Yeah, 2023. So right. when people are having investment portfolios or assets that they're looking at a capital gain and you're hearing, should I cash in now and take a lower tax rate? Well, according if Benny's opinion is right, then we've got a couple of years to figure this out. However, that's a, still a, a question up in the air for people who've got portfolios. What's interesting now is if we go back to our conversation with Benny and other economists, let's say a year ago, uh, in the beginning of the pandemic and so forth, you, uh, universal income benefit or, or yep. a, a floor on income for people was not even a, a, a possibility at that right. point in time. It is now uh, on the forefront, making sure that there's some sort of Income and Lifestyle Guarantee, Universal uh, Daycare, um, 
interesting perspective on there. What I haven't heard is there's no universal education past secondary education. Mm -hmm. So no post-secondary education, first two, three, four years covered by the taxpayer base because we need to increase that to get higher paying jobs. It's to protect the bottom, not push people up, which is a very interesting move that's happening. And I think we're going to have bigger debates. What's going to be interesting is you're going to start seeing I'm going to call it polarization, for lack of a better word, amongst the political groups, uh, if you look at from all the different different parties. And that's going to cause a lot of rippling in this in this country, um, where people are now going to say, um, we should support lower-income individuals, or we should not support lower-income individuals. And I think that's where uh, we're going to have a very volatile time. It's going to be blasted everywhere on social media, yep. so yep. be ready for that. Yep. But again, it comes down to do not act on the noise. Wait for the news. Yeah, and that's right. And I, you know, I guess the takeaway here is if there is going to be uh, a permanent increase in spending, put two and two together. That money has to come from somewhere. Exactly. Okay. Well, listen. Um, this is the environment we're in. It's dynamic. It's always changing. The taxes are always changing. You've got to be nimble. But we still have to support our lifestyle. Yeah, and, and taxes being the most exp- uh, most high, or the highest expense item you're going to have through your retirement. How do you minimize tax? and still reach the lifestyle that you want. We're going to talk about that on our webinar Tuesday, February 23rd, 7 p.m., live online. You need to go to morethanmoneyradio.com to register. You want to get out of the cold? Are you thinking about retiring somewhere sunny? Well, stick around because we're going to talk about the best places in the world to retire after the break. Here on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Okay, we've all been trapped in our homes. People are getting tired of the winter. And I've had lots of conversations with people. Where can I retire to? Where's the best place? Get me out of here. Get me out of here. Like, calm down. You just can't go anywhere. (laughs) This is why we have magazines, experts, and research done on the top 10 places to retire with the Global Retirement Index uh, by International Living. They do this every year. And I love what they do. I'm going to give them a suggestion, Dave. Okay. I'm going to say, give us the bottom 10, not just the top 10. Because I'm planning for your retirement, <laughs> and I want to send you to the bottom 10. I'm thinking it's Siberia leads the list. I don't know. You think so? so I don't know what their health care is like, but I do know their weather's not very good. I okay, don't think let's... they have health care. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't know. even know. That's a good question. I don't know either. Antarctica. Dan Preshner, who's been with us before, is back. Senior editor, internationalliving.com, and the International Living Guide to Retiring Overseas on a Budget. Wow. Um, fantastic stuff, Dan. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk Thanks, a little guys. bit Thanks about. For me. Yeah, let's talk about where the best places are to retire in 2021. I'm I'm curious, uh, sort of the top three or four on your list. Top three or four. Number one is Costa Rica, a perennial favorite. Then followed by Panama, Mexico, Colombia, and Portugal are our European entrant. Those are the top five right now. So any of those will probably do your uh, do you right. Yeah, no doubt. Why why do they make so? What makes the top of the list? The, we've got a bunch of categories, and we, we rate these places as far as housing, benefits and discounts, visas and residents, fitting in, development, climate, all important, health care, incredibly important as, as well, and three other categories, including cost of living. So we crunch the numbers, we find out what the totals are, and whoever comes out on the top of all those numbers wins the list. And Costa Rica wins this year with an average ranking of 85.2 in all those categories. Dan, what changed to push them into number one? Because I don't think when we did this with you last year, they were number one. No, they weren't. Actually, Portugal was number one last year. 
they recently changed their uh, tax scheme so that now expats have to pay more taxes. They had a golden visa program where if you bought a bunch of property at a certain price, you'd automatically get a resident visa. Well, they quit doing that because it became uh, a little cost prohibitive and everybody was buying luxury Lisbon condos. So it wasn't working out the way they wanted it to, so they changed that. That Mm -hmm. dropped them in the rankings, but it's still a beautiful place to live. And then Costa Rica, so it was second last year. Yeah, that's right. I remember that. It's a a perennial favorite, and uh, we had to factor in how these countries did with COVID. It's a retirement index. Hmm. It's long-term. It's not just a place where people did great handling COVID, but you have to factor that in because that plays into health care. That plays into governance. Uh, so Costa Rica did a good job, and it boosted them in the rankings this year. Dan, give us our listeners a bit of an idea of what does it cost to have a typical lifestyle? I know you're in Nebraska right now, um, locked in there. We're up here in Canada. There's a certain standard of living that we're accustomed to. If we want a similar standard of living in Costa Rica, Panama, Mexico, your top three picks, um, what, what are we looking at it from a cost perspective? When we do these indexes, we're looking at uh, somebody with a retirement income, probably a fixed income, maybe a social security. We'd like to keep it at 2000 U.S., 2500 U.S. a month or under. You can get a high-quality, very, uh, very acceptable lifestyle, not giving up anything in medical care or amenities, for 2500 bucks U.S. or less a month. And all of these places qualify. When you look at Costa Rica, Panama, Mexico, is there anything between those three that that's unique, that attracts North Americans to come to versus the other two? What's most sure. attractive? Yeah. Panama, Panama has been dealing with North Americans for a century with the Panama Canal. So it's really easy to fit in. If that's what you want, Panama is your best bet. More North Americans have second homes in Mexico than any other place on the planet. It's affordable. It's right next door. Everybody can speak a little Spanish. That's why Mexico always places. And Costa Rica hasn't had a standing army, I don't think, since the 1950s. Almost 100% literacy and almost 100% carbon neutral. So if those are high on your list, Costa Rica is your best bet. You just pick the things that mean the most to you and and make the determination with the rankings on the Global Retirement Index and start doing your research from there. When when you look at the cities, and I'm more familiar with Mexico than I am with Panama and Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. We're seeing more and more um, North Americans go outside of the key tourist destination yeah. areas into smaller towns, uh, more gated communities, so on and so forth. Is that the trend in the other two countries? And, and where in Mexico do you think are the best places for newly retired individuals to go to? Oftentimes, that is the situation. You get off the beaten track, you get out of the larger metropolitan areas, your costs go down. I mean, that holds true in France and in Ireland, not just in Mexico or the rest of Latin America. But Susan and I have loved Merida in the Yucatan for years and years. And it's a big enough metropolitan area that it's got one of everything, but the costs are still low. It's a well-run town, beautifully maintained, uh, very peaceful, very quiet, very safe. It gets really hot in the summer, 
but if you never want to shovel snow again, it should be at the top of your list. <laughs> you just had to do that, oh. didn't you? Of course, of course. So, Dan, it all sounds exciting. Everybody wants what you just described. But there are some things that you need to consider and think about before you just pick up and leave. Why don't you walk us through a little bit about what people should be thinking about before they make this wholesale change? Absolutely. Uh, These countries are their own places with their own histories, their own economies, their own ways of doing things. The rest of the world is not North America light. It's not just like living in Canada or the United States at half the cost. You have to probably learn a few uh, phrases in a foreign language. You have to get used to a different kind of bureaucracy. You have to get used to dealing with people on their cultural level and not yours. For a lot of North Americans, that can be a shock. Uh, It's also a slower pace of living, a much more relaxed pace of living. And if you're a type A personality, you're going to have to get over that. You're going to have to learn to be a little patient and handle a daily challenge. Uh, There are obstacles to living abroad, obstacles you've never thought of. If you keep a sense of humor and think of them as interesting challenges rather than obstacles in you enjoying your preferred way of life, you'll be a lot better off. You'll be a much happier expat. I'm I'm ready for this. I've been <laughs> I've been working with Dave Popwich for 11 years. So I have to be patient and expect the unexpected when you it comes. Are, you work at light speed. It would be awesome to watch you in an environment where you needed patience. I have patience. <laughs> I love it. I have patience. Dan, you've often said to us in the past um, that one of the best ways to experience uh, international living without making the financial commitment to leaving your country is to go rent uh, for a period of time and actually immerse yourself in the culture and to see if you can actually, if you will enjoy that experience. Um, give us your comments on on sort of your experience and what you did. That has never been truer. I mean, don't do as I say, not as I do. Susan and I just sold the farm and moved uh, and, and discovered that it was the right thing for us. But there's no reason for anybody else to do that. When you can go to a place, rent it, spend as long there as you possibly can to get a feel for what it's like to really live there, then follow your gut. If it's the place that you thought it was and you want to spend your retirement there, bang, make make a buying decision or keep renting. Or Rents are cheap. Do, do whatever fits into your into your budget, but try before you buy. That just makes sense. Dan, I want to thank you very much for uh, for joining us, kicking off the new year right. Uh, lots of opportunities for people, and boy, when you throw the word budget and sunshine into it, it gets a lot of people's attention. So thanks very much for your time today. Our pleasure, guys. Thank you much. Dan Pressner, Senior Editor, InternationalLiving.com and the International Living Guide to Retiring Overseas on a Budget. Okay, that might be the lifestyle people choose. We got to figure this out, and then how to how to fund it. It's the question is, you know, where do we go? How do we get there? What's it going to cost? Mm-hmm. And then when you figure that out, you come back to your your home, you open up your statements on your portfolio, and you go, how am I going to afford this lifestyle for the rest of my life? Mm-hmm. How am I going to be able to do this? Well, you got to have a strategy and a plan. And how do you bulletproof your retirement? We're going to talk about that at our next upcoming seminar Tuesday, February twenty third, seven p.m. live online. You need to register. So go to morethanmoneyradio.com. That's morethanmoneyradio.com to register. Okay, well, thanks for sticking around and joining us for another edition of More Than Money. We look forward to doing it again with you next week. 
David Popovich and Basil Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodcundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Basil Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodcundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodcundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund, an investment industry regulatory organization of Canada. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodcundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodcundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodcundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.